Welcome to Chabat's Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This May 5th, 2020, Cinco de Mayo edition, episode 138 of Nature Bats Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. In addition today, we have a special guest. Guy, will you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. Today, we are delighted to have Kirkpatrick Sale on the show. Sale is a prolific author who has written about political decentralism, environmental issues, Luddism, and technology. He founded the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, an American graduate school within Middlebury College, a private college in Middlebury, Vermont. Sales' passion for uncovering and revealing evidence was demonstrated while he was associate editor and then editor-in-chief of the student-owned and student-managed newspaper at Cornell University, the Cornell Daily Sun. While an undergraduate at Cornell, at Cornell, Sale was one of the leaders of a protest against university policies forbidding fraternizing between male and female students. In the early 1980s, he taught at Goddard College in Vermont and presented programming for New York City's progressive radio station, WBAI. However, he is best known as an author of more than a dozen books, the latest of which is The Collapse of 2020, published in January of this year. He is also the author of many, many articles. Among his latest writing is an essay published at Counterpunch on September 26th of last year, I greatly enjoyed this recent essay titled The Illusion of Saving the World. Kirkpatrick, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Um, uh, I should clean up, clear up some of the uh, mistakes of that introduction. Um, I uh, never had the pleasure of being nestled in Middlebury College. I did start the Middlebury Institute, which had nothing to do with Middlebury College. It uh, took its name from the town, but not the college. And uh, uh, unlike certain people um, famous uh, in the uh, uh, the current uh, make-yourself-feel-good uh, environmental movement, I was never attached to Middlebury College, and 
they never have been attached to, to any college or university, uh, which says something. Uh, I have never wanted to be, and they have never wanted me. One, one time when a junior faculty member at uh, a distinguished New Jersey university said, you would be perfect to, to come next year. Uh, be be a, be the uh, the writer uh, in residence here next year, New Jersey. You'll get the job. Last I ever heard from them. They don't want me. The academy doesn't want me. It's all right. It's all right. I grew up in the academy. My father was a uh, professor. I knew all about Cornell University, which is why when I went there as a student, I was able to. Uh, uh, talk about it and demonstrate against it, but no, I've never had anything to do with any university, uh, which is why I go on writing books and trying to teach that way. Only way left to me. Well, this is guy, but, and I made that I'm, mistake. I am happy I to be here, Patrick. Uh, yes. So, sorry for making that statement. This is guy. I'm I'm delighted to be on this program. Although uh, we we have to acknowledge that that Guy has been doing the, this sort of thing for uh, a great many years, and I am uh, joining the caravan only in the last four or five years. If you're listening well, live, this is for our listeners. Please. Call in with questions or comments for us and for our guest. Our toll-free number is 888-874-4888. And that number is included at the bottom of my latest post at the Nature Pat's last blog, GuyMcPherson.com. Kirkpatrick, your latest book, The Collapse of 2020, follows a bet you made quite some time ago involving the collapse of the industrial economy. Will you fill us in on the details? Well, yes. Uh, it was in 1995. I had written uh, a book called Rebels Against the Future about the Luddites in the 19th century England, uh, favorably about the Luddites and favorably about the neo-Luddites that I identified in the 20th century uh, that were, again, bringing up questions about uh, technology and the dangers of technology. Uh, and I had hoped uh, to get... Um, people stirred up talking about technology just as it was beginning, this is 1995, just as it was beginning to just pour over them in, in waves, uh, torrential waves that they could not uh, begin, begin to resist, even though I tried to resist it. And a guy from Silicon Valley who worked for Wired Magazine, which is the Bible for the technophiles of Silicon Valley, he came to interview me in New York, and uh, it was a kind of a hostile interview, and he was all for technology, and I pointed out the dangers, and suddenly, at one point, he said, all right, you think that uh, the, the world is, is going to be bad uh, if this technology overtakes I, he said, what do you think is going to happen? And I laid it out. I said, the ecological damage, and that ecological damage is likely to spark political and uh, economic damage as well. I foresee the time coming in a new uh, world when uh, the dollar will not any longer be a usable currency, 
I see economic chaos. I see times in the future when uh, the political systems won't hold and that there will be wars and uh, internal rebellions uh, all over the world. And he said, oh, yeah? He said, when's that going to happen? And I had not, I confess, given a single thought to when that was going to happen. But here we were in 1995, so I thought way away in the future. I said, 2020. It had a nice ring to it, 2020. And uh, he said, all right. And he got out a $1,000 check. He slapped it on my desk, and he said, I'll bet you $1,000 that it doesn't happen in 2020. What could I do? Uh, so I got out a checkbook. I figured by 2020, the dollar wasn't going to be worth anything anyway. So I said, all right, here's my $1,000. And he wrote up uh, this interview in Wired magazine called Interview with a Luddite. And he reproduced the two checks and uh, told of this bet. Uh, and it was splashed uh, all over his magazine and then on the Internet. The Internet just then beginning to splash in our lives. Uh, and it became a rather famous bet on a betting site on the Internet. And so uh, we go on, and suddenly 2020 began to come near. And so I said, I'll write a book on saying how close did we come to the collapse. And I started that two years ago. And a year ago, Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine, he uh, he emails me and says, well, how about that bet? It's, it's going to come due. And I said, well, we'll see. I figure if it's 2020, I have until... December 31st, he said, no, you shouldn't have that. I said, that's what I insist upon, December 31st. And then I wrote the book, which came out in January of this year, and it said um, the collapse of 2020. And it laid out what was uh, sick and decayed about the systems that we now have uh, around us, political environmental and economic uh, and when I was done I, I was astonished to see uh, I, I had uh, taken but 50 pages to make this case against the world as it is in 2020 and why it is collapsing I, I had to say at the end of the book which I wrote in, uh, in December of, of last year the book was published in January of this year I had to say at the end of the book that the collapse doesn't seem to have come yet, but we have another year to play it out. And even if it hasn't come yet, we are close enough to seeing where and why it is going to collapse, if not this month, then next, and the month after that. And uh, so that's where we are now. And then suddenly uh, there comes a... Uh, pandemic collapse, uh, a system which I had never uh, begun to consider. That I, I, I did consider that there would be new diseases. I knew pretty well that uh, with the melting of the permafrost and that there would be new diseases, but I hadn't anticipated that the uh, 
viruses uh, in their clever little way would would get stronger and more powerful as they have done in the COVID virus. Uh, and so we, in addition to the collapses that I had predicted, that we have this collapse, uh, and it shows in glittering detail just uh, what my collapse was about. That is, none of the systems that were supposed to hold in our society held when this pandemic came. The economic system collapsed completely. Uh, there, there are some people with enough money on Wall Street and uh, their friends in the Fed in Washington to uh, pretend to keep uh, Wall Street alive, which they will pretend for some months more, but obviously it can't go on. They don't have those billions. Uh, economic system collapsed. Political systems collapsed everywhere. All international systems collapsed. Most national systems collapsed. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's a demonstration of the power of environmental systems to uh, wreak their damage upon our society, uh, as they are continuing to do. I think uh, there will be less CO2 in the atmosphere uh, at the end of this year, but not significantly enough to change the amount that we have built up over the past years. So uh, global warming will, will continue despite this blip. And it's, it's, the, the virus is an example of how fragile our systems are in the face of a determined element of nature. Of course. How could there not be? Where, where do you think we get all those materials that support the industrial economy, the wood and the cement and so on? It, it of course, comes from the living planet. So you can't have one without the other. Back with you. Oh, welcome back. Sorry about that. Um, uh, the pre-collapse loss of uh, our connection with you. Whilst you're off the air, I uh, I mentioned in your uh, 2019 counterpunch article uh, titled "Political Collapse: The Centre Cannot Hold." In it, you mentioned that 65 countries are currently at war, and 76 are in various stages of collapse. I want to ask you about that, but I want to give you a little background on me. I lived in Brixton, Mozambique on a development project in during the war, and I watched collapse unfold and in the process that took place in Mozambique. I worked in Mozambique during the Civil War, where the, the apartheid launched war against Mozambique, and I watched collapse unfolding. And I see that happening in so many African nations. And a lot of it is to do with the militarism. Can you go into your thoughts on the militarism and what effect that is driving the collapse? Well, the number of wars that I listed uh, is a figure that is, is true as of January of this year. But... Uh, because of this pandemic, 
I'm sure that there are even greater wars breaking out in Africa and some parts of Asia that we don't know about yet. Uh, because uh, people have uh, will, will, will be told um, by governments what to do, and they will, don't want to do it, and so they will be resisting. Whether it's the form of a rebellion or an outright war, we, we still don't know. But you know enough of the experience of war to say that uh, in, in the case of, uh, uh, of the collapse of systems around you, that's, that's what people do. They go to war. Absolutely, and um, I think there's a very huge war brewing at the moment, and it will be to protect U.S. dollar hegemony. I think the war for the greenback is on, on the way. The shooting war hasn't started, but there are lots of nations now trading uh, oil in anything other than the greenback, and I think that's a really major issue for the U.S. and its ability to just print money out of fresh air. Well, I think you're right. Uh, the uh, obvious economic collapse hasn't quite caught on. Uh, they are still trying to pump up the dream, the illusion that they have this money in Washington that they can just keep printing it or putting it out on their machines and that they can do it forever, uh, although there is nothing behind it, nothing behind it except the uh, good will of uh, the United States, uh, which is diminishing very quickly. Uh, nobody with any sense could believe that uh, there was a sound economic system in the United States uh, to back up this dollar. It, I, I think within the next all oh, three months, this whole Wall Street illusion uh, will blow up in their face. I don't know if is that too soon, do you think? No, I honestly don't. I think that just before the pandemic was declared, the Fed was pumping trillions and trillions in, and it wasn't working. The velocity of money was not changing. And then very conveniently, the pandemic arrived and everything got shut down. But we're not operating in any kind of normal or, or realistic paradigm. The whole way the world is working at the moment where... Our, our owners are telling us to stay home and they will pay us our wages. That is fantasy. There's no semblance of capitalism in that. So I think that uh, that's another another aspect of why I believe that the collapse is unfolding as we talk. Well, uh, will, will it collapse before uh, global warming takes over? I would say that the two are closely related, that one is underlying the other. Yes, yes, I, I agree. Um, but uh, will this economic collapse be evident uh, b before the environmental collapse becomes evident? That's, all, that's the question I was asking. Yeah, I think for some people, especially people who live in North America and, and pursue lives of relative privilege, I think that will be the case. I think the economic collapse will be the first hammer that hits a lot of those people. Some of us who are paying attention have already noticed that, that 
environmental collapse has precluded the ability to grow food in places like Central America, the Middle East, and Northern Africa, the southern island states in the South Pacific, for example. So we don't have to look far to find examples of ecological collapse driving economic collapse. Well, and, and if the when, if he, when that comes to our neighborhood, we'll see. But with, with the rise of little nationalisms around the world in the face of the collapse of internationalism, uh, the food systems will also be disrupted in the next coming months, uh, maybe catastrophically. So, oh, I so couldn't agree more. Areas the chairman of Tyson Foods recently said that the supply chain is collapsing right now. And, you know, that's what he's willing to admit. There's no telling what he actually thinks. Uh, and But Trump believes that if he gets the government to take over the, uh, the, the meat supply, that uh, everybody will be content. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. No, and I'm pretty sure there are at least a few things that President Trump isn't being fully honest about. Well, he may not have the uh, mental capacity to uh, absorb everything uh, that other uh, normal people do. I mean, he is a very special kind of guy, uh, and he has a uh, kind of mentality that is excellent for getting certain things done. Um, but it, is, it, it, it depends upon a limited amount of information and a maximum amount of action. And he's very good at doing that in certain things. But in this case, I don't think he can possibly do it. Um, and then obviously the Democrats can't do it either. Uh, I, right. I, I think he is the perfect candidate to be the last president of the United States of America. That's very likely. Uh, I don't see uh, there being a very good chance of this election taking place in the fall. And with the kind of collapse that I'm predicting and that I talk about in this book, uh, it seems to me quite possibly that there will be reasons that they will give us why there will be no elections. And then after that, I, uh, I would imagine that uh, the national government uh, would lose its authenticity over time. In, in addition to a monetary collapse, a collapse of the monetary system that takes away the confidence of the American people, can you imagine other means by which the collapse could take place within the next few months? Well, I can imagine. Uh, I, I, I can imagine political collapse, as I just suggested, that that refusal to uh, to hold the elections. Uh, I, I cannot, uh, at the moment, see a greater collapse than, than a uh, uh, coronavirus uh, as a demonstration of nature's power over our technology. Uh, there could yes, be it's other, almost as if uh, nature is in charge, not human will. There could be other viruses also. Um, what, what we seem to find out is that uh, 
the virus um, is a, uh, a a fiercely operative uh, set of systems uh, that has, over the last 20 years, <coughs> reappeared uh, regularly uh, with ever more uh, viciousness and and and, uh, and capacity to spread. Uh, there's no reason to think that this is going to be the last one. Right. In uh, fact, there have been recently discovered several viruses that are coming off of melting glaciers. So you're correct. I don't think there's any reason to expect this to be the last um, pandemic. Yes, and, the and, last and, and Guy has talked about uh, permafrost uh, melting and uh, the the dangers that might uh, occur with that, uh, that would that would seem to me very possible to happen within the next year, uh, over, over this summer. Yes, it would well, certainly surprise me if we didn't have more surprises out there in the form of melting permafrost and in addition to melting glaciers. So I yeah. certainly see a strong interaction between what's going on with respect to the environment and how we treat ecosystems and what what happens with the industrial economy. Yes, exactly so. Uh, which which uh, the establishment doesn't understand. The connection between the environment and uh, and the rest of uh, the rest of our world. Uh, nature is is a calculation that does not enter into most of the equations that the establishment makes, and uh, that is of course why we have the, the problems that we have. But that is also uh, the reason for the force uh, being exerted now against uh, our techno systems. It's because we don't understand nature, we don't factor it in. But right. nature not only bats last, but uh, these days uh, it's uh, making up the top of the batting order, too, I would say. Yes, I couldn't agree more. So if you could go back in time to fix the ailments of industrial civilization, where would you go and what would you do when you got there? I wrote a book about that. It was called After Eden. And I went back uh, to the Industrial Revolution. I went back to uh, the Roman Empire. I went back to the early empires of Saqqad and Egypt. And I went back farther until the place where humans <clears throat> invented killing animals. Hunting. Hunting uh, did not take place for uh, most of the uh, million years uh, and more that we were humans. We didn't, we didn't hunt. We didn't regard nature uh, as oppositional. We were part of nature. We scavenged along with other animals. But a crisis came at 70,000 years ago, and the crisis was caused by, as I analyze it, um, 
by the explosion uh, of a volcano that caused global cooling, global winter, instantly. And it was a crisis for the humans that remained. And the ones in southern Africa decided to take up hunting. They invented hunting, and they used hunting, and they killed enough animals to be able to survive. And that kind of uh, attitude, that kind of success spread throughout southern Africa, and that caused uh, the continuation of the Homo sapiens. But uh, it also meant that there was a wholly new attitude toward nature, that for the first time, nature was the enemy, and animals were the enemy, and we had to go kill animals. And if you have ever killed an animal, uh, you might know that this is, even now, after 70,000 years of it, this is quite a powerful uh, uh, grip on the human heart uh, to, to uh, have to, to do something like killing an animal. And uh, they, they had to do this to survive, and so they built up political and uh, mental systems that enabled them to do this. And I think that's where we began that separation from nature, that opposition to nature that uh, we developed uh, over the following 70,000 years to the place where we are now, which is, uh, in effect, uh, uh, doing our best to kill nature. Uh, we, we won't succeed, but we might kill, we might do a lot of damage to nature in that process. Right, and that 70,000 years ago corresponds to the cognitive revolution as described in relatively straightforward language by Yuval Harari in his book Sapiens. And yes. so as with many of these outcomes, there might be an interaction between what's going on in the species, in the human brain in this case, and what's going on with the environment. So there there could be a lot more going on than we understand. I suspect there always is. And yet a lot, our, a lot more going along on in nature or in our psyches. Both. There's so much we we don't know about either one. <laughs> Especially considering the hubris we demonstrate, which demonstrates even further how little we actually know. So, and, and how little inclined we are to uh, learn from how little we know. Yes. Yes. On, on that subject, I'd, I'd like to bring up something that I heard you say, Kirk, where uh, in one of the interviews you did, you denounced scientists for peddling hopium. And, and uh, I think this is a really important subject. Where there's so much self-censorship from the tenured science um, faculty community. What, what thoughts on, on the understatement of the severity of the crisis from the general scientific community? Well, I can tell you this. Um, in 1980, I wrote a book called Human Scale. And three years ago, a publisher asked me to revise it. And so I wrote Human Scale 
revisited after 37 years. And what I did was take out all the hope that I had put into it in 1980. Even in 1980, I was not exactly convinced about all of this hope, but the publisher told me that you, if you're going to publish a big book, you have to have hope in it. And so I put hope in it. But in the revision, I, I took all of the hope out. And then uh, when I began to uh, learn who the uh, near-term human extinction people were and uh, their talk about hopium, I understood exactly um, uh, what we were up against and why I was glad that I had taken out hope from my book. Well, and, of course, in the collapse of 2020, uh, I, I ended without any hope. And I say, in fact, at the end of it, I say hope was the one thing left in Pandora's box. But uh, we never took it out. And uh, we never should take it out. It's there in the box for a good reason, because there is no hope. Yeah. It's an, uh, an interesting, well, a good quote from uh, Chris Hedges from his documentary American Psychosis. Quote, if hope becomes something you express through illusion, then it's hope. It's fantasy. So, in the meantime, Kirkpatrick, we haven't collapsed yet. So... The system is still apparently serving at our pleasure. So do you, do you have recommendations for people if, if the collapse is complete within the next three months or the next eight months or whatever, the next year? Do you have recommendations for people and how they live? Well, uh, of course, there is some real question as to whether humans are going to live very much longer. And uh, since since that's an open question, um, my only feeling is that uh, we should uh, attend to our own selves and our own families and, if possible, our own communities and uh, try to live outside of the effect of all of these systems as much as we can. And uh, if... Uh, the total collapse um, comes along with uh, diseases or temperatures that will kill human beings. There's nothing much we can do about it. We can just gather our grandchildren onto our bosoms uh, and uh, say uh, we made a mistake. Uh, but uh, what I am going to do, in fact, is um, I'm leaving my home here in South Carolina, and I'm going back to Ithaca, New York, where I was born, and going back uh, near my daughters, who are not too far away, and with my son-in-law, who's there, and I want to uh, live on a self-sufficient farm, and uh, as things collapse around, and the depression gets uh, worse than anything we've ever been taught. 
and then I want to be able to have my own food for my own farm for as long as I can. That's the best I can uh, I can imagine for my for my career. A hunkering down in my hometown uh, around food, food and family. That's that's great, and you foresaw the next question I was going to ask, which was, how do you live in light of this information? And it sounds like you're taking action-oriented steps to be close to the ones you love and also to provide for your own food supply. There was a, a man uh, in England, a Welshman in England, uh, when I was there in the 1980s, who wrote a book on self-sufficiency. John Seymour was his name. Uh, His books were published, and uh, I think uh, they may still be published. But he was teaching us self-sufficiency back then, Uh, and uh, a lot of communards uh, were listening to him back then. But uh, self-sufficiency, I think, is what we have to depend upon for as long as we can. And that's what I will try to be doing. Uh, of course, we have become so attuned to a system in which almost nothing is self-sufficient. So I don't know how well I will be able to adapt to this, but at least that is the goal, self-sufficiency. And it sounds as if you will have some help along the way in the form of family members. Uh, <laughs> that depends. Uh, it, it, it may happen uh, by force or it may happen by choice. I don't know. <laughs> Are you familiar with the aerosol masking effect, which is sometimes called global dimming? Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, I have a friend who is a great proponent of that. And uh, and I I mentioned him in 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 my book in in passing. Um, oh, okay, that's great. Um, so, this I, I want to turn this a little bit personal. What would you consider to be your most important contribution so far? For me, it's always the last thing I wrote, but I'm not <laughs> sure that applies to all writers. I don't know. Um, I I would say that that book that I mentioned about um, locating our problems 70,000 years ago was an important book, and I think the Human Scale book is a book that will forever teach people at which scale on the earth, with respect to the earth, we should be living, uh, if, in fact, we continue to be living. Um, I have that fond hope that if anything, if if, if books survive, that uh, they will be the only things that can teach people in the future not to do what we have done. And so uh, on my gravestone I have uh, written the word writer and I have to believe that um, what I have written is the only way that uh, wisdom in the future, what I have written and others, 
is the only way that wisdom will be available for future generations if there are any. But but who knows? Right. So assuming industrial civilization persists for longer than both of us believe, say into next year, and everything seems to be going swimmingly, will you continue to write? Do you have specific projects that you're working on now with respect to your writing? Uh, oddly enough, just recently I have conjured up a, a, a project which I might go into in the evenings uh, when I've uh, brought in the hay, uh, and it has to do with going back to Ithaca. Uh, Odysseus went back to Ithaca, and uh, this guy Homer wrote a big whole long thing about it. And so I was thinking of looking at my career uh, compared to Odysseus' career, and although I haven't fought any Trojan Wars, I have met Circes, uh, who have turned all of my allies into animals. I have met uh, uh, various uh, uh, forces and uh, and uh, dangerous thinkers and unwilling people uh, in in my years. I've tried to teach them what's wrong with nuclear power, what's wrong with Vietnam War, what's wrong with wars, uh, what's wrong with our attitude to nature, what's wrong with this and that. I've tried to teach that, and uh, the forces have been uh, arrayed against me, uh, powerful forces, because I want to change the world, the, the techno world that we live in. And uh, this was the, the same kind of uh, difficulties that Odysseus faced as he tried to go back to Ithaca. So I thought maybe I would uh, be a little bit of a homer and try to write about uh, my career uh, and coming home to Ithaca. That's great. Um, it sounds to me that you have been influenced by Daniel Quinn. Do you know him by chance? I do not know the man. But I do know his various works. Uh, okay. No, and I, I haven't really, but uh, I, I can see what you mean. I thought his was a rather cheap way of telling that story, but that, that may be uh, wrong on my part. Well, he went on to try it in other ways besides fiction. He tried a non-fictional account, uh, an attempt to get out a similar message in any event. So who have been your primary influences as you have pursued a life of writing? Oh, God. Well, Lewis Mumford, I would say, uh, comes up highly. Lewis Mumford... Uh, Leopold Kor, E.F. Schumacher, uh, in political terms, uh, Murray Rothbard and Murray Bookchin. Very 
disparate people, those two Murrays, but uh, very influential in me. Uh, that's about it. Uh, what about Joseph Tainter? Um, no, but I, I, of course, read read what he had to say. Uh, he's an academic, uh, and I distrust academics. You'll notice that, that uh, the people I have uh, just suggested were uh, important to me. All of them worked outside of the academy. I don't trust academics. Touche. Well said. Hey, uh, I, I've been yeah. impressed with your certainty that collapses either imminent or unfolding, because that's how we feel as well. What are your thoughts on the cognitive dissonance surrounding the denial of how precarious our position is? What to make of it? What to make of it? Uh, <laughs> more of the same that we've dealt with all these years. Uh, no, no matter our cause, uh, we, we live in a world of denial. You mean that's not just a river in Egypt? (laughs) (laughs) It caused a lot of trouble back then when it was just a river, and it's causing a lot of trouble now. Yes, yes, indeed. Oh, by the way, when you when you guys were saying academics were untrustworthy, I could hear you. Just just to be clear. (laughs) Although, Although I did walk away from that life a little more than 11 years ago. There may be some hope for you, some redemption. <laughs> anyway. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. I hope uh, I hope we have some listeners. Uh, I spent ten years talking on WBAI uh, uh, and and hoping every year that I had more and more listeners, without knowing if I did. But I hope we have here and now. Uh, listeners that will understand exactly what we've been trying to say and uh, uh, will we'll be able to face the future better knowing what we have told them. So, my thanks to both of you. Thank you, Mr. Sale. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today, and I, I also very much appreciate your efforts beginning as an undergraduate student and through your 10 years at WBAI and continuing with your recent writing. Thank you very much for your life of service. (laughs) It seems our guest has left us. It's been a pretty sketchy connection, but that's what happens as you teeter at the brink of collapse. Hey, I'd like to thank our listeners and callers today. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The next day, uh, sorry, I will, uh, it will be broadcast on the 2nd of June, the next episode. It's PRN.FM, the Podbeam or it's Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, GuyMcPherson.com. For further updates, interviews and speaking tours, and you can keep current with my work at Kevinista.live. 
Thanks again to today's guest, Kirkpatrick Sale, our listeners, and also to Afrazine for his music. Guy? Until next time, remember, the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end, nature bats last. Over to you, Studio. Get you.